Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Aha, ah. <laughs> Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possession. <laughs> I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. And I'm guessing we all know those famous words. This song by John Lennon. Genius.com says, The antithesis of a call to arms, Lennon's Imagine, is one of the most beautiful and awe-inspiring songs of all time. Imagine asks listeners to envision a world of peace and unity. World peace. You've probably heard it said many times. You know, the beauty pageant. If you had one wish, what would it be? World peace. <laughs> right? We desire peace, don't we? But let's but 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 being being serious, we do desire peace, don't we? Wouldn't peace be a great thing? If we think about the world and we think internationally, think about the lack of peace at the moment. Think about warring nations. Think about international tensions. I mean, the, the news is riddled with this. I remember from, from the time I can remember watching the news, it has felt like there's been a war going on somewhere. It's just been moving around. And that's what's been happening. But it's not just international. It's not just if we look international. If we do, we see, wow, that's not good. But what about domestic? What about thinking at a domestic level? And thinking about the lack of peace among homes. Think about broken families. Broken relationships. What about fractions even within cities? Pockets of hostile communities. The reality is, we just live in a world that is absolutely full of hostility. So this is a picture. Here it comes. No. Or do I need uh, Peter Lever with his magic hand? <laughs> so this is the um, Global Peace Index. Apparently all the red, uh, if you can't read this little code on the left, bottom left, the red is the less peaceful areas and the uh, blue, bluish grey is the more peaceful areas. Yellow and orange still constitutes not quite so peaceful. And there's a range of categories that that is 
based on. Just looking at the world there, this is 2017 apparently, um, you get a taste for visually how unpeaceful the world is. Right? Now, take that picture with a pinch of salt, as it's probably always good to take things of that nature. Nonetheless, it still gets a point across, doesn't it? And uh, according to this survey, the world has become less peaceful in the last decade. Apparently it's become slightly more peaceful since last year, but over the decade, we're on the way down. Now just one last thought about this, this peace. <coughs> Consider the cost of peace. Think of how much money goes into military costs. Think about uh, millions and millions and millions of pounds going into just military. Think about the amount of human intelligence, just in terms of resources, the brain power that is being funneled into uh, creating peace, fighting wars, etc. Think about the number of lives that are lost in the process of trying to build peace. Think about the government, the, 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 the weight, the burden that it is on the government, and therefore all of us, our taxes. Think about the kind of, just, the, just simply the administration strain. Think about the number of NGOs and the number of money being poured into uh, those organisations to, to run. Or, or as we zoom in, think about social welfare, the support involved in that all the administration that's involved, or even zoom in closer, think about the number of families, the cost of families, the cost of on, on children through the lack of peace in the home. We are absolutely riddled with unpeace, with hostility. You might say we're getting somewhere, Dave. We are getting somewhere. We are moving forward as a people. Really? The one test case I like to use on this is marriage. The cry for, you know, the optimism of world peace, yeah? We're going to get there. And the reality of the number of divorces between only two people who love each other and choose to be united with one another and can't make it to the end of their lives. World peace? Really? I think the reality is we're in an absolutely hopeless situation and we have been since before we can remember. That's probably the objective data. Now, into that scenario comes Micah and his vision from God. Just to get us up to speed with where we were, Micah is a vision, uh, the book of Micah is a vision from God. It's addressed to the nations. Remember that we heard at the beginning, hear all you nations. So remember we've got the nations listening in as the audience. It's concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. 
And what we had in chapter 1, 2, and 3 was uh, Samaria, the capital city and the people of uh, God's people in the north, and Jerusalem, the capital city and God's people of Judah in the south, have been uh, committing idolatry. They're not worshipping their, their, um, the God who saved them from Egypt, and they are committing injustice. There is social sin, people oppressing the poor, etc., uh, etc. Et Leaders are, are ruling the people for their own selfish ends. And uh, God is, has said that because of this, I am coming down from my throne. The, the, the earth is going to melt before me. This, he, he gives this vision of himself coming down and he says he's going to turn Samaria to rubble. He's going to smash her idols. And then look at the last verse in chapter 3. It's chapter 3, verse 12. And Zion, that is Jerusalem, will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill and mound overgrown with thickets. That's where we're up to. That's where we're up to in this vision so far. We've had a glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 2. But now, a mighty ray of sunshine, perhaps. Let's read chapter 4 together. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule <coughs> over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem. Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labour. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, 
their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Before we try to hear what the Lord is saying, I'm going to quickly pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time together. And I ask that you would help me to speak words of truth, speak with clarity. Please give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Please help us, Father, to understand this vision, to see how it impacts our lives now. And help us to walk in light of it. We ask, Father, for that day when we will see peace on the earth. We long for it. Amen. So, just a little heads up that I'm not going to be talking, if you look down uh, in your Bible, from verse 9 to verse 13. Verse 9 and 10 are a little pair. Verse 11 and 13 are a little pair. I'm not going to have time to talk about those tonight. But if you are interested in what they say and you have a question, let's chat after. I'd love to talk about those verses with you. We're going to focus on chapter one, uh, sorry, verse 1 through to verse 8. Now notice that what we have here is a vision of peace. See in, in chapter 3. They will beat their swords. Sorry, not did I say chapter 3? I meant verse 3. In verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, we're talking about peace here, right? They, the nations, will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So it's a vision of peace, but there's a shock here for our modern ears first. And what is that? First of all, is that this, this portion, verses 1 to 8, is not first of all about global peace. Did you notice that? Look at what, ha look what happens in the beginning, in, in verse 1. In the last days... The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It, the mountain of the Lord's temple, will be exalted above the hills. That's what's going on, primarily. It's primarily the victory of God. It's primarily God exalting his own temple over all of the other hills. The hills in the scripture here, is an, there's an allusion to all of the other high places that people would set up their, um, their false shrines on to worship the other gods. And so the, the, the Lord's house being exalted and established is a way of saying there's going to be victory for the house of God. Now that is in direct contrast to what we just read in chapter 3 verse 12, isn't it? That Zion was going to be ploughed like a field and Jerusalem was going to become a heap of rubble. And you see, secondly, so Zion is exalted, that's primarily what's happening, and the Lord is ruling. Look at verse 3, at the beginning of verse, verse 3a. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations. This is a picture of the Lord ruling from his temple. And in verse 7, you capture the same thing. 
I will make my, the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. This is a picture of the victory of God. You see, verses 1 to 8 are one vision. It's the nations first, and then in verses 6 to 8, it's Israel second. And you see, the peace that flows out the back of it is the way that true peace really works. It's, recon it's vertical reconciliation first, and then it's horizontal reconciliation. And so we see that happening in this passage. Many, look what it says here, they will, many nations will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's the first thing they're doing. They're going up to worship, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. These are people coming to the Lord first and then, as a result, beating their swords into plowshares. And so this cuts against modern uh, tendencies, expectations, efforts to sidestep belief in the promotion of peace, which ultimately is an impossible thing to do, isn't it? Because unity needs to be surrounded, uh, unity needs to be around something because actions flow from beliefs. If you want an example, try to raise a child with somebody with whom you have completely opposite beliefs. At the end of the day, your beliefs influence the decisions that you make. What shall we teach them? What shall we do with our money? What kind of home will they grow up in? What will it look like for them to be in this world? The beliefs profoundly affect the actions. And so unity needs to be around something, and it's not as simple as just saying, throw that out. And so this vision here is a vision of converted nations drawn to the Lord and then expressing peace with one another with that, with that unity that centre of unity being the Lord's temple now let's just take a moment to examine this vision a little bit closer I want to point out a f <coughs> I want to point, point out four things about this vision First of all, there's the extent of the vision. It's peoples and nations. I want to say that this is a global vision. You see here where it says, nation will not take up sword, will not take up sword against nation. I think that general language that Micah is using doesn't speak of a kind of there is going to be a few nations. This is a localised thing that I'm talking about. But this is an international vision. Look at the end of verse 13 of this chapter. You see, the, the, the Micah, sorry, the, the God of Micah is a God of all the earth. When he, says, when he says at the beginning, hear all you peoples, it's an address to all the earth. The Lord in Micah is the Lord of all the earth. He's the Lord of creation. And so the extent is all nations. 
And in verse 6, and ver- uh, from verses 6 to 8, you see this, that it also includes Israel. You, see, you can see by that word, those words at the beginning of verse 6, in that day, declares the Lord. That ties what happens in verse 6 and 8 to what came before. You see, in the day that the Lord's house is exalted and the people, uh, the nations come streaming to it, that's the day when I will also do a work amongst the people of Israel. I'll make the, the, those that I scattered, those that I have chastised, I will turn them into a strong nation. And you, and you also see that from the same idea in verse 7 of the Lord ruling from Zion. It's the same picture. So it's Israel and it's all nations. That's the extent. The second is look at the effect of this work. The effect is this extraordinary conversion. Just think about the enthusiasm of it with me. It's not a kind of dreary, oh, I suppose we better go and worship the Lord, isn't it? You know, I guess we better take ourselves over to Zion. Look at the, look at the way that, that Micah expresses this picture. Many nations will come and say, look at them. They don't just say, let us go up. They say, come, let us go up. Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's have him teach us his ways. It's so that they can walk in obedience. There's an enthusiasm in in this uh, vision, isn't there? To, to, To act, to obey the Lord. Yeah, he can teach us his ways. We can walk in his paths. It's an extraordinary effect that we see. In some ways, these guys are more enthusiastic than, uh, than I often feel. Come. Let's go up to the Lord to te- hear his ways. Doesn't that sound great? Yes, awesome idea. Why? Then we can walk in his paths. Then we can obey what he says. Isn't that fascinating how we're kind of averse to it? We're like, oh yeah, I could probably make it up. To listen, I could probably have a little have a little butchers in the Bible or something, or I could probably have a little, you know, knock out a couple of words in prayer, or maybe I'll get myself to church in and out as fast as I can. And you know, don't start talking about walking in his ways though, getting all obedient and legalistic on me. Like, you know what I mean? I'm here for grace, alright? But isn't that, that that that's not quite the same picture, is it, that, that that's expressed here in Micah? It's an extraordinary effect. Micah's painting this remarkable picture of these people that long to know the Lord. They're more enthusiastic, it seems, than Israel has ever been. Third, look at the duration of this vision. Look with me in verse 7. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. You see, the Israelites had experienced many a temporal revival. They had those periods in their history. A good king would come, revival would break out, people would turn to the Lord and they'd be back again. This is a vision of the Lord ruling from Zion forever. Just take a moment to just think about unending days. unending days of peace. Unending days
hands of the righteous God ruling from his throne. Goodness in the land forever. Fourth, notice the certainty of the vision. And this is beautiful. Look what it says at the end of verse 4. And no one will make them afraid. Why? Why, Micah? For the Lord Almighty has spoken. (coughs) The Lord Almighty has spoken. It's not just the Lord. It's not just the Lord has spoken. It's the Lord Almighty has spoken. This is going to happen... The Lord Almighty has spoken. I've given you a vision, Micah, that is absolutely unbelievable. Think about global hostility, domestic hostility. Think about that in light of this vision. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. It's worth pausing and just thinking about this. It feels impossible, does it not? In some ways it feels a little bit like John Lennon's pie in the sky. But if we take the Bible seriously, this is God's vision for his creation. It's a vision of restoration and peace centred around God himself. And I think Micah's purpose here, at least the way that it cashes out for us, is it enlarges our vision. Maybe that's what we need for ourselves, a boost, an enlargement of our vision and our expectation for what God will do. But before we get ahead of ourselves, you might be thinking to yourself, hold on Dave, when is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? It all looks very localised and material. And how is that a Christian vision? Right? How does that actually work? Are we going to sit under our vines? Are we all going to have a fig tree? Are we all going to be at Jerusalem? Is that what we should be fighting for? Should we do that? Should we back Trump? Get Jerusalem at the centre? Build Zion? It's a good question. So, what is going on? Now, this is where I hope that it doesn't get too technical. And I hope, God willing, bring some clarity. According to the New Testament writers, and we'll have to maybe jot down if you're taking notes some verses, you can look at this yourself and piece it together. Here's what I think is happening. I think there's a nowness to this vision. There's a sense in which this vision is already happening now in our midst. And here's what I mean by that. 
the last days, and here we're going to move fast, but I'm going to show you how the bits in chapter 4 connect with the, New with the New Testament writer's understanding of what's happening now. So at the beginning of chapter 4, we have in the last days, right? That's Micah saying, this is a thing for the last days. That last days language, that's Old Testament Bible language. It appears, as, let's say, a, a, a dozen, just under a dozen times. There's something going to happen in the last days. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, this is what it says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. According to the New Testament Bible writers, you can also look in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, where the hour has come. You can also look in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, where, where Peter tells them that what's happening at Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out, he says, no, no, this is what Joel said. In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The New Testament writers think that the last days have come. So that's chapter 4, verse 1, the last days have come. Secondly, the Lord is currently reigning from Zion. The Lord is reigning from Zion now. In Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 23, the vision is, that's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 23, we have people that the picture of what we do when we gather is we come to Zion. Check this out. But you, verse 22, he, sa he says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, right? He's telling, talking to New, New Testament believers. He says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, right? You guys have come somewhere else. He's talking to people just like us. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. Really? To the city of the living God. Note this, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyfully, joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, or to the gathering of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. The word is going out of Zion now. And that's just what we've had in Micah. The word will go out from Zion. So we have the latter days have come. We have people gathering to Zion. We have uh, Jesus, the Lord reigning currently through Jesus. In Acts chapter 5 verse 31, we see this exact same picture. It's in yeah, Acts chapter 5, verse 31. He says, Peter, speaking about Jesus, says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince or leader and saviour. And 1 Peter 3, verse 22, has got the same picture. And if you want to, you can check for yourself about images where Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Lord. He sat down in a place of rule. Jesus is currently sitting on his throne in heaven, 
ruling. <clears throat> Jesus himself is the temple. That's John chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. You know, he says, I'll destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And then he says, but he was talking about the temple of his body. Because Jesus becomes the place now that we go to meet with God. We see that the nations are coming together. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 18, you see. Where you who once were strangers and aliens to the covenant have now become part of the people of God. You who were far off have been brought near. And we see it right through Acts, the, the nations coming, the nations coming to Jesus. This is a vision, Micah's vision has a nowness about it in that it has been, there is a sense in which it has been fulfilled. The Ethiopian comes, the Greeks come, and they all worship, they gather around Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, to hear the, the word of the Lord going out from Jerusalem. They have beat nations who would have fought against nation. They have beat their swords, uh, their metaphorical swords into, into plowshares. And they are at peace with one another. There's something about this happening now. It's quite exciting, really. And the Lord has done the same thing with his own people that we read in verses 6 to 8. He has made them into a strong nation. That language about being made into a, a strong nation, you might think, oh, okay, but this is a nation. It's exactly how Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Remember, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The church has become that nation. So I think what's happened is, what we have in Michael, we, have, we do have this vision but, the, but there's a move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, which is a move from the, work with me, from the material to the spiritual, or you might say from the seen to the unseen. It was physical land, now we're looking forward to the new creation. It was physical battles, but now we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. It was physical blessings, but now, as Ephesians says, we, are, we, we have the spiritual blessings in Christ. Adoption, reconciliation, election, justification. It was biological inclusion. It's now union by faith. There were festivals and sacrifices and kings you could see and touch and feel and be a part of. Now we come to the once and for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. All the festivals have been fulfilled. He rules and reigns in heaven. It's not, an, it's not an exclusive physicalness. There was a spiritualness to the, new, to the Old Testament. Thinking about sacrifices of God or a contrite heart. And it's not a case that in the New Testament it's exclusively spiritual or unseen. We do experience God's blessings now, don't we? There are some material provisions. The Lord does break in. He delivers his people out of prison. We see him having done that, uh, rescuing them from prison. He, he, historically, he saved his people from uh, calamity but there is, a, there is an emphasis on the one or the other it's because I think we're in a different kind of 
dispensation, if you might say. And there's another end, as 1 Peter 4, 7 says, that the end of all things is near. So we're in the last days, but there's still an end to come. And in that end, this vision, I think, will become material again, where we truly will see in the new heavens and new earth, with the physical return of Jesus, we will, there'll be a physical ruling and reigning where God will be the centre, where we will be streaming and, and that we will have that, perhaps that same sort of enthusiasm to come to worship. There will be a real resurrection from the dead in physical bodies. There will be eternal life that is never-ending life. As the Lord says in Revelation 21, Behold, I am making all things new. So just as we finish and we ponder what this might mean for us, <clears throat> I hope we can see it two lenses. At the one lens, this may, may our vision be expanded. May our vision for what the Lord will do be enlarged. What he will do in the earth. Perhaps there's a call here for some. Maybe this is fuel for mission. I think this is how the New Testament writers take it. Paul sees in the Old Testament God saying the Gentiles are going to come in and they're going to hope in his name. And Paul says, yes, I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go to people that haven't heard about him because they're gonna. So there's fuel for mission here. God has begun this work. And maybe that's on somebody's heart here. There's a call to the faithful to walk in God's ways now. And I think that's what's happening in verse 5 here. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. That may be the current state of affairs. But as for the faithful remnant, this is what happens sometimes in the prophets, you get a little word to the, a little word to the faithful remnant that have always exist amongst Israel, existed amongst Israel. And think that's what verse 5 is doing. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Yeah, that's the vision that's going to come at the end. But we will start walking in that way now. It's almost a let up, let's do that. Let, that's what we'll do. Let's, let's walk in the, in the name of the Lord our God forever. There's also a call to the outsider here. As I said at the beginning, this is a word for all the nations to listen in. To come now. To come to the Lord. To turn away from idols, to say no to your other gods. Last two. Perhaps there is a sense in which this helps us, like the New Testament writers, as their eyes are lifted, and Paul does this, to the vision of the glories to come. He then sees his present situation in light of that future end. And perhaps as our eyes are lifted and as we see that vision, as believers, we see that 
we're not at the end. And that's a good reminder for us because we so easily get bogged down in the present. And on that note, it also reminds us of the promissory nature of the Christian life. I, I think I made that word up. hope that's okay. What I mean is it's, it's, it's promissory over against the advisory nature. You see? God, doesn't, God hasn't given us advice, right? It's not just advice. This vision is not advice. This is a vision of this is what's going to happen for the Lord Almighty has spoken and it's an invitation to put our faith in that, in him, that he will bring his vision to pass. And it's so important that we see that. That is the way the Christian life works. God offers promises to us in Christ, these free promises, and he sets this thing before us, and we have faith, this, this triad, right? Faith, hope, and love. We have faith in Christ and hope God will fulfill his promises. I just find that that just takes such a burden off me. Such a lifting. It reminds, it, it, somehow I feel just one step, one step back on and I feel, right, God's doing this stuff. He's promised to do this stuff. And he's just saying, I get to be a part of this. That's awesome. And that's really helpful in, in a vision like this to remember the promissory nature of the Christian life. As we trust in God, we look to him, him and the promises that he made. Behold, I am making all things new. pray and then we'll sing some songs to rejoice in God and to consider his promises and to lift our eyes to him. Father we give you thanks for this vision. We pray for the nations. We ask that they would lay down their swords and that they would come to you. We recognise that peace is not something that we can muster up in our own strength or achieve with our resources, uh, but we must turn to you first. So we pray, God, that the nations would be subdued under you, that they would bend the knee to Jesus now, before the day he comes to tread the winepress of your wrath. Have mercy upon them, God, we pray. We long for that day of peace throughout the whole world, united under you. We thank you that Jesus rules and reigns from heaven now. We thank you that we can be his people, that we have experienced that peace. We pray that in our church there would be peace among us that we would walk in your name and in your ways now we ask for Jesus sake and in his name Amen <clears throat>